Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you are free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water in the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Grant, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men are, of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman who, to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder, and room to spend the night. The, father, or the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. And as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. 
Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came into the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, Speak on. I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free of my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and I said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgins who come out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who says to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah had come out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. And I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah um, bore to him. So I put a ring on her nose and bracelets on her arm, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I might turn to the right hand or to the left. And Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their, their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the woman remain with us a little while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I might go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called to Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, 
our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lehi Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening. He lifted up his eyes and saw, behold, there, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and she saw Isaac. She dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The word of the Lord. Well, who among us does not love a good love story? I think probably the younger boys would be reluctant to admit it, uh, like the Fred Savage character in The Princess Bride. But if their grandpa was to read them such a story, no doubt they would quickly get engrossed in the thing. And no doubt they would pitch a fit if their grandpa skipped anything, um, even the kissing parts. Here's the proof that we all love a good love story. Every other movie genre, whether it be comedy or action or kung fu or horror, whatever, all of these other genres must have a love interest as at least a subplot if it's going to be a good movie. But a romance movie stands alone. Right? It doesn't need any help. It doesn't have to have a horror subplot to kind of get, get it through. Disney's billions have been earned mainly by its princesses and frogs slash princes. And I submit that very few people cared about the, the friends on that NBC hit show back in the day. They were more interested in the girlfriends and the boyfriends of that show. It was all about whether Ross and Rachel would ever end up together. In fact, you think of all of the best sitcoms and these are nothing without their couples, whether it's Kevin and Winnie or Corey and Topanga or Jerry and Elaine or Jim and Pam. You can kind of tell what era I watch sitcoms in. Not only that, but most of these follow the same basic plot. A love story has a pretty, pretty uh, tried and true formula, and you know it well. Boy meets girl, um, boy loses girl, boy finds girl again. Um, sometimes it's a little bit more intricate than that. Their eyes meet across a crowded room, and he buys her a drink, and they go on a few dates, and they seem to be the perfect couple, and then there's some kind of misunderstanding, and they break up but then they overcome impossible odds and they get back together and they live happily ever after. It's a tried and true formula. And the Hallmark Channel is, is one that just basically applies that same formula, uh, just with slightly different characters and slightly different circumstances. And they just work that formula over and over and over again. And we just eat that stuff up. We love a good love story. 
I don't know, there's something like really, it must be hardwired in us that makes us really resonate with a good love story. And what we have here in Genesis chapter 24 is an epic love story. Perhaps you can tell just from seeing it and hearing Jason read it, which he did in a, in a masterful way, you can tell that it's something special. This is the longest chapter in Genesis, and that's on purpose. The narrative embellishments that you come across in this chapter, the, the repetition, the details, all of this are, are really striking and very appealing. And you can almost sense that Moses is delighting in this story as he's telling it. But, but hold on a second, because maybe you've noticed that the boy meets girl part doesn't even happen until the very end of that long chapter. You know, the part where Isaac and Rebecca's eyes meet across an, an empty field. Uh, that doesn't happen until verse 63 of 67. It's, it's almost like an afterthought. So what's going on for the first 62 verses? Pastor, didn't you say this was an epic love story? Yes, it is, and forgive me if I've led you astray, but it's not primarily a story about the love between Isaac and Rebekah. It's an epic story about the love of God for his people. And I want to just demonstrate that to you right off the bat by showing you the skeleton on which all of the the meat of this passage hangs. So here's the backbone. I hope you have your Bibles opened to this chapter. I, I'll be referring to things uh, throughout. And obviously we can't work through the, all of this in detail, but I do want to point you to some important stuff. And here's the backbone for the story, it seems to me. Verse 12, O Lord, show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Verse 14, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness. The steadfast love and faithfulness, that's what makes this whole story, not to mention the whole storyline of Scripture, so beautiful and so compelling. Uh, love that we experience on the human plane is, is secondary, and it's just really derivative. It's the love of God is where it's all at. And so I hope that by looking at this chapter and within a little bit more detail, we can better appreciate the, the love of God for his people. And I want to show you five P's related to the love of God from this chapter. Five P's related to the love of God from this chapter. I'll give them to you in turn, and I am praying that we'll have adequate time for them. I want you to first consider the love of God and the past. The love of God and the past. When this epic story begins, we expect to read something like, Once upon a time... Uh, you know, with that ornate, uh, highly decorated first letter. Instead, we read, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And that's, that's putting it mildly. That's being very polite. At least, at this point, he's at least 137 years old. And his wife Sarah has died, as we, as we saw last week. And in the narrative... 
the spotlight is soon going to move off of Abraham and onto his son Isaac. So this is uh, the twilight, his twilight years. And in many ways, chapter 24 is an account of the transition of patriarchs. It moves from Abraham to Isaac. You can tell this just even in the language of the servant. At the beginning of the chapter, when he's speaking about his master, he's talking about Abraham. But then at the end of the chapter, when he speaks of his master, he's talking about Isaac. And so the transition has happened. Uh, the, the, all the focus now is going to be on Isaac. And we also see something in this chapter of the transition of matriarchs from Sarah, who has now just died, to this new girl, Rebecca. But standing here on this vista, this high point uh, at the twilight of Abraham's long life, it can be accurately stated and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Do you see that in the first verse? That's, that's the statement about Abraham's life. The Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Later in verse 34, Abraham's servant can report something very similar. He says, the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. That's not just an incidental comment. Okay, this is the explanation for Abraham's life. This is the only reason that Abraham's here in Canaan. This is the reason that he has flocks and herds and silver and gold and male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. The, the reason that there is such an eligible bachelor named Isaac out there in the first place is all because of the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. It's all because God made, made good on all of the very great and precious promises that he had made to Abraham. But why? Why are we reading this note about the love of God in the past? And why is it here at the very beginning of the story? And I submit to you that it's because facts from the past fuel faith in the present. Facts from the past fuel faith in the present. Now, that's a, that's a bit of a mouthful, but I trust that it's helpful, and I want to just explain it to you a little bit more. So there's a present crisis right now, and by now that really shouldn't shock you. All along, there's been crises. This is how the Abraham narrative has progressed the whole time. It sort of moves from crisis to crisis, and these crises occur whenever the promises of God are challenged by a present circumstance. It's always a test of faith. And here's the present crisis. In Isaac, we finally have the promised son. We finally have the one about whom all of these promises are funneled and, and through whom all of these promises are funneled. And all of these, you know, all of this really depends on Isaac. Um, God has promised Abraham that he will make him into a great nation, that he will give him descendants that, that are as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the, on the beach. But right now there's only one guy, and his name is Isaac. And he is a single dude. He's unmarried, and he's childless. So the crisis is, what will become of the promise? Now that Abraham is, is moving off the scene, 
and Isaac is, is coming up on the stage with the spotlight on him, he's a single guy. What will happen to the promise? And Abraham, I want you to notice, is not worried in the least. He's not worried in the least. He's a man with a plan. He's going to send his chief of staff, his chief servant on a mission. It'll be a mission from God, a mission to find a wife for Isaac. And even the servant is a little bit concerned that he won't be successful. But Abraham is very confident. Look what he says to reassure his servant in verse 7. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and, may, and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So, so ask yourself, what exactly is giving Abraham such confidence about the present challenge? And the answer is God's past faithfulness. And now, you who struggle with faith, ask yourself this question, what can give me confidence in that I'm going to make it through these present challenges and struggles, which are so difficult, and I, I understand that, but ask yourself, what's going what's to propel you through that? And the answer is the same. It's the fact that the Lord has never failed you yet. He's been so kind. He's been so loving. He's been so faithful. And I'm convinced of this in your case and in mine that he who has begun such a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I've noticed that a lot of Christians fancy themselves as prophets. Okay, They, they can foresee a very bleak future for whether that has to do with um, our country you know, when I talk to Christians about the abysmal state of, of things, I always hear them say things like, yeah, and it's only going to get worse. They're, they're playing the part of a prophet when it comes to our country or uh, when it comes to their own personal lives, the future of their family. Their, their worry and anxiety kind of betrays the fact that they are predicting prophetically something very dire and it's my strong opinion and I'm sure something along these lines has been said by someone else before me but Christians need to quit being prophets they're thinking themselves prophets Christians need to become historians and that'll turn you from being a pessimist into an optimist Real fast, as, as you reflect on the love of God for you, which he has demonstrated throughout your, your whole life and even before you were born, he's demonstrated that to you time and time again. He's never failed you yet. You would come to understand if you would engage in the work of history. It would do you a world of spiritual good if you could just turn around in your present place, right where you're standing, and look back and conclude things like we sing. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. If you could just turn around and say, and just notice that through many dangers and toils and snares, I have already come. It's grace that's brought me safe thus far, 
and grace will lead me home. You see, that past faithfulness is what propels your faith into the future. And with that blast from the past, you can be propelled in the present to walk by faith into any unforeseen future. And that brings us to our second P. I want you to see next. The love of God and progress. The love of God and progress. So when you do this historical reflection and are able to see how far the Lord has brought you, one of the effects of this ought to be to have you say, I'm never going back there. I'm not going back there. I, our state's model, uh, motto, which is Excelsior, um, I think it's a good one. Uh, it's perhaps in the case of our state, overly optimistic and idealistic, but this ought to be the motto for the Christian life. Excelsior, onward and upward, never backwards. We ought to make progress. And again, it's a recognition of the love of God towards us that is going to make, motivate us to, to make that progress rather than to regress. And we see this in the life of Abraham. Look at verse 7 again. It's in view of God's loving and faithful dealing with him in taking him from his homeland and his kindred and all of their idolatry and promising to give him the land of Canaan as an inheritance, it's for all of those past reasons why Abraham is dead set against two things. And notice them with me. First, there's no way that his son's going to marry a Canaanite girl. There's just no way. In our study so far in Genesis, we've seen enough of the inhabitants of that land to know that they are a wicked, idolatrous, pagan people. It would be spiritually disastrous for Isaac to get entangled and hitched to a Canaanite. Future generations of Israelites are going to be warned strongly against intermarriage with the pagan nations that surrounded them. In fact, it will be strongly prohibited in the law. And, and we're going to see, eventually, if we follow the story out far enough, even from their kings, Israelite kings on down, that the people disobey this strong prohibition, and it's always to their spiritual harm. Um, when they take wives, they take also their wives' idols, and it leads them inevitably away from their devotion to Yahweh. In the New Covenant, of course, this translates into the strong prohibition against being unequally yoked. Christians are commanded very clearly to marry only in the Lord. So when Abraham commissions his servant to find a bride for his son, he insists that he finds her back in his home country among his kindred and not among all of these pagan people that he soon will displace. And this leads to the second thing that Abraham is dead set against. If you're wondering, well, why can't Isaac go with him to pick his own wife? Or what if this girl doesn't want to be picked? 
Uh, that's the kind of question that we would be more prone to ask in 2021. What if the girl doesn't want to be picked or doesn't want to be in this extreme episode of married at first sight? What then? And if you're wondering those sorts of things, you're in good company because the servant is wondering the same kinds of things. He asks in verse 5, what if the girl doesn't want to come back with me, back here with me? Should I then take your son um, back there to her, to the land from which you've come? And Abraham answers, absolutely not. See to it that you do not take my son back there. And then to strongly underscore how serious he is about these things, Abraham makes the servant swear an oath that he would not, under any circumstances, choose a Canaanite woman and that he would not, under any circumstances, bring Isaac back to his home country. Now, the form that this oath took, as you can see from verses 2 and 9, is that the servant had to put his hand under Abraham's thigh as he swore by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that he would not do these things. Now that phrase, under the thigh, is a euphemism. It's a much more comfortable, although not actually not much more comfortable, it's still very uncomfortable, way of referring to the place that the servant actually had to put his hand. And this appears to be a very serious oath form and thankfully a very rare one. Uh, but the downside is we don't know a lot about it, about when it was used or more importantly, why, why on earth it was used. Um, in English, following the Latin, there, is, there it does seem to be a relationship between the word um, testimony, as in last will and testament and the word testify and the word testes there does see it, it does seem to indicate that there is some kind of relationship historically with all of these things although we don't really know how to put them together neither are we very interested in putting all of that together but but you understand the point don't you this is the strongest possible of promises to not do what what Abraham has said not to do. And as for Abraham, he has decided to follow Yahweh. No turning back, no turning back. As far as God's promises go, Abraham is determined that there's only going to be forward progress. He's not going back. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, Abraham and his household are going to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, if we could put it in New Testament terms. And I want you to just remember this important connection. This determination, Abraham's determination to progress and not go back, is founded on where the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord have brought him thus far. If you reflect on that, I'm, I'm sure you too will be determined never to go back. That's how it should be for us. When we consider what God in his love has done for us, 
in salvation, in sanctification. I hope the thought of you returning to your old home, to your own old habits, to your old friends, to your old vomit, as the Proverbs puts it, I hope that idea is absolutely sickening to you. Instead, our attitude should be because of the love of God. The the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. No turning back. Third, I want you to see the love of God and providence. The love of God and providence. At this point, really we come to the heart of the story. We do so um, as our time is is evaporating quickly, more quickly than I'd like. We don't, we don't have the time to get into all of the details that we would want to, so I want to just kind of remind you what I'm sure that you all sensed as Jason read this, which is that there's a sermon simply in the, in the public reading and hearing of this chapter. So I don't, actually don't feel the need to have to go through everything in painstaking detail because uh, it, it, it in many ways stands on its own. But the intricate details of the story make the point much more articulately than I could ever make that the love of God is seen beautifully in his providence. In his providence. Now, we've had, if you've been hanging with us in our study of Genesis, we've had opportunity to consider what providence is. We saw this especially in chapter 22, that providence is a mechanism whereby God sees to something. He sees to it. If something is lacking, if something is not right, if something is needed, then you can be certain that God will see to it. That's his providence. Uh, John Piper gives really spend, I don't know if you've seen his new book, but it's about this thick. It's entitled Providence, and he uh, gives you a a really good uh, insight into what this is, but he also offers a a rather short definition for providence. He, He says this simply, sovereignty is, it's God's sovereignty, basically, in the service of wise purposes. That's what providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. It's God's total prerogative and his complete ability based on his steadfast love and his faithfulness. It's all of this that's marshaled for a particular purpose for his glory and for the good of his people. So the problem in the present chapter, of course, is finding a mate for Isaac. And for the servant, the, the question comes down to, who is the woman that the Lord will provide? But notice that that is nearly synonymous with another question, which is, how will God demonstrate his love to my servant, or to my master Abraham? Who is the woman that God will provide how will God demonstrate his love? You can see this clearly in verse uh, 14. Look with me there. It comes in the context of a prayer that the servant prays as this entourage pulls up and parks their camels near a well in in the middle of Mesopotamia. 
one evening. And the servant is humbly asking the Lord for a clear providential sign whereby he could make certain that the woman that he has chosen uh, is the right one. The, the woman that God has chosen, will he'll be able to identify her. That's, that's the humble prayer. And I want to just say this as an aside. I know we've got a lot of uh, single folks in our, in our church. I want to just let you know that the point of this chapter, the point of this passage is not how to land a godly chick, okay? And, and this, this passage certainly doesn't justify doing what a lot of single young men and women do, which is to ask God for a really clear sign that, you know, this potential mate is God's uniquely chosen one for them. That, that's not what... That's not the lesson you take away from this. This is obviously a special circumstances, a special circumstance. All of God's promises are, are funneled down to the choice of this mate for Isaac in a way that God's promises are not hanging like that on who you choose to marry. Furthermore, we have no New Testament command or example that would lead you to ask for such a thing that God would just like put arrows pointing to this one person somehow. In fact, we have clear commands that go the other way, which say, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But in this case, it seems as if the Lord approves of this test that the servant sets up so that he can um, correctly identify providence. And here's the test. It's basically this. The girl that offers me a drink of water... And not only me, but this fleet of camels here. Let her be the one. And before I get too far removed from the point that I'm trying to make, looking in at verse 14, where the servant expresses this he's, he, in prayer to God, he says, Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And further, he says this, By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Those two are, are intricately connected. Okay? The providence of God and the steadfast love of God are, are so closely connected such that his love is seen in all of the ways that he sees two things in your life, that he meets all of your needs, that he gives you all that you desire and that you lack nothing. And look how the Lord responds to this challenge. Verse 15, while the servant is still praying, this came out in Jason's reading of this text, this is, he's still praying these things. The words are still in his, mouth, in his heart, as he later says. As that's happening, onto the stage walks a beautiful young lady. The narrator tells us her name and gives us enough details about her family to, to make us understand that she's already ticking some of the boxes. She's from Abraham's kindred. Um, we're also told that she is beautiful and that she's a virgin. And by the way, only one of those things is valued in our day. Of course, that's beauty. Uh, we put a high, the highest possible premium on beauty and attractiveness. Virginity, on the other hand, 
is mocked. It's something that uh, people think we ought to be embarrassed about. It's seen as a liability. But that is only, I want to let you know, young people, that is only because our world is totally jacked up. It's totally upside down. Everything that is good and true and beautiful uh, is evil to the world. And everything that is perverse and evil and wicked is, is beautiful in the sight of our world. So don't, don't misunderstand this. And don't listen to the world's messaging on this because they are completely wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. I want you to understand this, young people. Purity is something that is prized by the Lord. But apparently, so is beauty. It, it may come as a relief to some of you to hear that there's no need for you to be a stoic in these matters if you're thinking about your own choice of a mate. There's no need for you to just kind of grit your teeth and hunker down and marry someone that you think looks like the back end of a bus. You know, that's not like the, the holiest thing that you could do. It's good and right and appropriate that you would be physically attracted to someone who would be your mate. But here's something that's even more important, and that is that your mate be servant-hearted. I'm getting off track a bit, because as I said, Genesis 24 is not in our Bibles as a how-to guide for dating and marriage. And I don't want to give you the impression that it is. But there are some helpful principles nonetheless. And it's very interesting that the servant's test is not completely random, right? It's not like a um, Gideon's fleece, which is just some, some object. It doesn't really accomplish anything. It's just a way of testing. It's very scientific. But this servant's test is very, very practical and maybe even purposeful. His test is going to reveal something very, very important about Rebecca's character. She does, in fact, give him a drink of the water that she has drawn from the well. And not only that, but she offers to give water to all of his camels. Achievement unlocked, right? That's the sign. But, but look beyond the sign. When, when you do the math on 10 camels and 25 gallons each, divided by the smallish volume of jar that she's, she's carrying, that she can kind of carry on her shoulder, that's a lot of trips to the well. That's a lot of work. And look at her in these verses. She's running She's running back and forth. She's a machine. She has a servant's heart. And she's serving hard. And she's delighting in it. That's, that's, some, that's a good woman. That's, a, that's, someone that you, that, that's something that you should value in your choice of mate. But even that, that, the servant doesn't jump to conclusions. Verse 21 says that he's watching all of this silently, He's quiet. He's trying to discern whether this is the one. But it becomes apparent very quickly that, yes, this is exactly who the Lord has chosen. And later, as this story is retold to her parents and to her brother, it's obvious to them that providence has been at work. Both Laban and Bethuel cannot help but conclude that in verse 50. 
they, they say, the thing has come from the Lord. The Lord is obviously in this. So what can we say? The Lord has spoken. It's clear this is the Lord's choice. Now, I submit to you that there's something that we all love even more than a love story. And it's a providence story. A providence story. We love hearing the details about how the Lord has sovereignly arranged all the details in your life to see to a certain purpose because He loves you, because He's been faithful to you. The best stories, won't you agree, are the ones that that leave us just shaking our heads at amazement, this smile plastered on our faces when we're thinking, isn't that just unbelievable? Isn't that just like God to do that? Who else but God? Isn't God good? Those are the best kinds of stories. Those are the stories that I love hearing from you about how the Lord is providentially working in your life um, because of his great love and faithfulness to you so that it's unmistakable that his hands are in all of it. Now, the very, very best stories are a combination of the two, love stories and providence stories all mixed together when you're introduced to a new couple and you know, when, when you're getting to know them, I, I guarantee it won't be very far into the conversation where you ask or they ask you, hey, how did you guys meet? And really what's happening there is that it's a setup. They're setting you up for a providence story. They, they want to know how God lovingly arranged all of the details to bring two different people from different, maybe from different parts of the world together uh, to be married. Those are the best. I've got a pretty good one myself. Friends, I want you to understand that God's providence is a function of his love. And I want you to see in the fourth place the love of God and partnership. The love of God and partnership. Now, when you're talking about the love and the providence of God, partnership is not exactly the right word. Okay, when you hear the word partnership, you're thinking of like someone to come alongside of you and share the burden. You're thinking of synergy, equal work. And when you're talking about that with God, it doesn't quite work because it's not like there's an equal partnership in any respect. That, that, that maybe serves to downplay God's absolute sovereignty. But I'm still going to use it. You know, here at Grace Baptist Church, you don't have to be with us too long um, to understand that we hold to a very high view of the sovereignty of God. That is, that God is God and He does whatsoever He pleases. He has the power and the, the authority to do everything that He desires. At the same time, we understand and we proclaim that God's sovereignty is, is fully compatible with human responsibility. You can see this clearly at play in the case of Rebecca. I think Rebecca is a great example of this. She's no doubt playing a very specific role in God's providence. This is what God has planned out from before the foundations of the earth in salvation history, that she would be the wife of Isaac, 
through, through whom the promises would flow. So she's, she's a, a figure in all of this. At the same time, she wasn't in, in the least a robot. There, she wasn't a robot at all. She skipped and served and she said yes, totally willingly. She did this as a free moral agent. So there's no incompatibility between God's sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility. But here's what I'm asking under this head. The question is, in the face of such obvious demonstrations of divine love, how will humans respond? How will the human partner respond? It's an interesting question, I think. And broadly speaking, I think there are two possible responses, and, they, and these are demonstrated by two different supporting characters in this passage. And believe it or not, these possible responses both start with P. It's, it's uncanny. One possible reaction to the love of God is to be a player or a playa depending on how you want to put that. It's, it's when you want to be a partner, but in a totally selfish and fleshly sort of a way. The prime example of this, of course, is Rebecca's older brother Laban, who takes the lead in the family, It's perhaps because of the old age or maybe even the mental incapacity of his father, so Laban's kind of taking the lead in all of the negotiations. And the question comes to him in verse 49, after he's told this fascinating story about all of the arranging that God has done, it, the question comes to him. Now then, the servant says, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that too, so I may turn to the right or to the left. And the setup is basic, basically this. God obviously has shown steadfast love and faithfulness to my master in orchestrating all of the, these events. Now the question is, are you going to partner with God in this and show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master? If so, tell me. And if not, tell me that too so I can just move on. Laban, of course, agrees to be a partner, but the question is, why? Why? And Moses basically tells us, all the way back in verse 29 and 30, look quickly with me there, Laban's coming out running. He's a runner too, like his sister, but for different reasons. So Laban's running, he's praising the Lord, he's offering generous hospitality, but again, why? What's motivating him? And Moses tells us, the narrator tells us in verse 30, this happened as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. As soon as he sees all the bling and the fleet of luxury camels, he wants a piece of the action. Laban was a player. He was a hustler. And you, you can't trust this guy as far as you can throw him. Even as he's praising Yahweh in verse 31, you get that creepy feeling that this guy has no idea who Yahweh is. 
It's just obvious. He's smart enough to know that Yahweh is important to this wealthy guest. And so he's going to start dropping Yahweh's name. This is a classic move of the narcissist, you know, to, to find out what will speak to you and, and then to use that to his advantage. He's a player. And before long, we are going to be reunited with him and with all of his schemes. And the narrator is just masterful in giving us a little foretaste of what's in store with Laban. But you're going to encounter people like this within the orbit of Christianity. Perhaps you're one of them. I don't know. You're partnered in the sense that you use God language and you, you, know, you, you post spiritually, religious-y types of things on your, on your Instagram but you're only partnered in the sense that it's only because of what you can get out of it, okay? Whether it's friends or business opportunities or acceptance or love, maybe money, I don't know. But the bottom line is you're, you're a player. You're in this just for the gifts, not because you love the giver, you just know that in, in this realm where the love of God is poured out on his people, there's, there's, you, you, love the, you, you love that environment for all the, the benefits that you get. But friends, that's not a way to partner with the love of God. That will lead to your damnation. We're, we all see through it. Okay, Laban is a disgusting figure. And if he's disgusting to mere humans, think about how disgusting that is to a holy God. Our God will not be mocked. He will not be used. Now, how do you partner with the love of God? And the way that you do this properly is shown beautifully, I think, by the words and the actions of this unnamed servant. He's not a player. He's a prayer. He's a prayer. Did you notice how he anticipates and responds to the love of God? Before, during, and after, we find this guy on his knees in prayer and then in worship. He's, he's pleading with the Lord at first to demonstrate his love, and then he's praising the Lord when God has demonstrated his steadfast love and mercy. This guy is always bowing and kneeling. As someone has observed, he even has his camels kneel, which is remarkable. But that's his whole posture. This servant's partnership is also seen by his obedience. I, I hope that you've picked that out about him, how obedient of a servant he is, from the oath-taking right down to the delivery of this beautiful bride. He is obedient. He's faithful at every step to obey all that has been commanded him. Even before he eats, look at verse 33, he must get on with the business that is at hand. He doesn't want food until we can settle this pressing issue, his duty. And this, friends, is precisely the response that you and I are called to. Having experienced the love of God, you're, call, you're called to partner in it. I know that's not the greatest word, but you're partnering in the love of God by 
extending it to others and by responding always in joyful obedience and in grateful, expectant prayer and in exuberant worship. This is your right response to the love of God that has been poured out in your life. And you've been very patient, but I want to just show you very briefly, finally, number five, the love of God and pity. The love of God and pity. So we have to fast forward to the scene where Rebecca and Isaac's eyes meet across an empty field. And when the caravan approaches and she veils herself and she's presented to Isaac and the two are joined as one, we, we read that he brought her into her, his mother's tent and that he loved her. And that in this way, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now to our modern ears, that sounds disgusting. It sounds Freudian. But actually, it is fatherly. It's fatherly. When we, when we think about and speak about providence, sometimes we do it the way that they did it back in the 18th century. You know, you read this in some of the founding documents and some of the, the papers that were written around that time. They speak often of providence, but they speak of it in a really cold and detached way, as if it's just some kind of force that, that they are victims to, and they just they yield to every whim of this cold force of providence. Sometimes we as Christians think and speak about providence in that way, but it is so wrong. That's not how God's sovereignty and his providence are spoken of in Scripture. They are the tools that God graciously uses for the purpose of comforting his people, for example. So, I guess what I'm saying is Rebecca isn't just filling this role like a robot that God has. He's got an open slot for a new matriarch and, and she's the one that he has sovereignly chosen. He's, he's doing some of that, but at the same time, do you see that she is God's good gift to Isaac, to the child of, of his promise, who, who he has set his love and affection on long before he was even born. This, this, this man, Isaac, who is still experiencing the grief of the, the loss of his dear mother. And so in the place of the love that he lost, God in pity is graciously giving him a woman to love. And that's not sick and disgusting. That's beautiful. That shows God's lo tender love and care for his people. Our, our God is just so incredibly kind. He is full of grace and mercy. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see it in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah. And we see it in our own lives if only we had the eyes to see. I know that you can see it most clearly in the lives of your brothers and sisters. But friends, take stock of your own life and see how good he's been to you. All your life, he's been, he's been good. He's been so kind. And now let us lean into that love and let that love fuel our faith 
Let that love give us confidence for the future. Let us respond to the love of God with prayer and praise and obedience. And and then let us share that love with others for the comfort of their souls and for the glory of God. Amen? Amen.